Hello, and welcome to the Lion's Den. Each week, we talk to creators in Web3 to learn more about them as a person, their journey both before and in Web3, and hopefully learn a lesson or two to pass down to the next batch of creators. I'm your host, Von Fronten, co-founder of the Atlas Lions Club. So without further ado, let's jump into the den. This week, we are joined by Kevin Henriksen, founder and CEO of Dust Labs. You may know him from D-Gods and Utes. Learn about his amazing career in Silicon Valley and a very interesting story about he and Frank first met. Listen here. Um, Sounds good. So first, welcome to uh, welcome to the Lion's Den. Um, so this is a space slash podcast we started uh, about a month or so ago where we wanted to bring in different creators from Web3 and not necessarily talk to them about the news of the day or um, a lot of what they're building, but just try to get to understand a little bit about their background, where they've been, where they're from, lessons they've learned along the way that they're now applying kind of in their the Web3 phase of their journey. Uh, and we'll try to pack as much as we can here in the next, I think, 22 minutes before I know you got to bounce. Um, you have had a pretty interesting path, uh, probably more so than others, given your, I'll, say, I'll call it life before Web3. Uh, but before we got to get into all of that, just a little bit of uh, about you. Tell us where, where you're from, where you grow up. I grew up in, uh, I was born in Oakland, California, in the U.S. Uh, and grew up at, there until I was, uh, let's see, first grade. And then second grade, we moved to a pig farm. Uh, in in Northern California, just south of Sacramento, a little town called Galt, G-A-L-T. So yeah, I grew up there and then, uh, yeah, went to college down in LA. What was the transition from a pig farm to LA like? Pretty intense. Um, <laughs> I, I was like, it's cool. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like I applied a bunch of schools and like, I really vibed with the LA stuff and I kind of was excited to get to a big city. And so to me, it, it wasn't too crazy. It, it worked out. I mean, we had traveled a bit uh, as a kid and so it's not like I was completely sheltered on a farm, um, but definitely very different and and sort of like a quick snap perspective of like just getting into, uh, yeah, traffic and hustle and bustle of a city and, uh, you know, the nightlight of a, of a college student. I think it's a great, it was a great place to go to school, especially for me growing up in a town with, uh, you know, there was more people, <laughs> there's 10 times more people in my freshman class, I think, than were in my town, right? And so like at some level that was pretty crazy but i think college again for some aspects is a pretty easy transition in the sense that um you know a lot of guardrails are up right you have a place to eat and sleep and you know and and that kind of thing and so it it wasn't too crazy um but yeah it was really cool to explore la and and definitely you know got my start in software down in, in down in southern california and so that that made it a pretty like i said overall simple transition but obviously some things are, are very different from quote unquote back on the farm. No, I love it. I love it. It's, uh, but it's like going from pig farm, not only college, college in LA, um, it had to be a complete night and day experience. And, uh, I'm guessing a very, very cool one as well. Um, so you graduate UCLA degree in engineering. Um, and, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, right? First couple of jobs right out of college, it kind of looks like your typical come out of, come out of college, go get a job. And then it seems like you, you started to get, I'll say exposure to the 
kind of startup world with um was it zimbra when yeah, you started I, to go into that phrase totally yeah i mean i think it just depends on like what your view is so like i had started a company in college doing like embroidery so i was like embroidering using a computerized embroidery machine like making sweatshirts and t-shirts and just embroidered stuff for the frats and and stuff on campus so i had like my own little entrepreneurial thing if you think about farming Farming's like the old school entrepreneur, right? You feed a pig, you buy corn or you grow corn and then you sell the pig for a profit. Like, so that there was this notion of like always, you know, taking raw resources or talent and then converting that into a business and providing a, you know, something for your customer. Sometimes it was bacon. Sometimes it was a pig walking out the front gate. Um, and then, yeah, then I joined um, a software company in my, between my junior and senior year. Uh, I, I thought, like I said, I thought I was applying for an internship because I had just applied for a ton of jobs on Craigslist and then interviewed at, you know, at a bunch of places. And when I got the offer letter, it was like a full-time job. And I was like, shit, I wonder if I applied for a job that was full-time. I, it was, I was kind of confused, but also like just super rolled with it. I was like, yeah, I'm in. I accepted the job and started working and um, it, it worked out pretty well. Uh, I had to go back to school because I didn't finish first. So I shrunk down my schedule for a bit. And then, yeah, like you said, um, and that was a venture backed company, but I was relatively junior. So wasn't too connected to what was going on other than I knew it was a startup and I knew when we ran out of money and when the thing shut down, like how it ends badly. Um, but then at Zimbra was sort of the second. So I joined a, a, then a, a public company that had just went public, uh, right in the dot com called open wave, which was a combination of phone.com and software.com, which were like kick-ass domains that had had crazy IPO runs, um, pre IPO. And then Zimbra was the startup where it was the first time I was associated with something that was really early and got to see and have a seat at the table for the early days around, you know, fundraising and how things were going and how things were building and like onboarding the first customers and launches and like support. And then, you know, ultimately getting acquired by Yahoo. And then we sold the business a second time to VMware and I was more intimately involved in that transaction. And then it ended up getting sold a third time to a private equity company. And so that sort of journey really immersed me into startups uh, and also understanding at the, the most fundamental level, the risk reward of how that works, right? In terms of, you know, what is it like to, you know, the kind of people you need at a startup? How do you build a team? How do you design a product? How do you go to market? And, you know, those are skills that I, I still use today and obviously continue to try to learn and polish that as I grow. But yeah, definitely the first sort of like entry into like having a, a really close seat at the table into a, a venture backed early stage startup in the software space. Yeah. Now, is it that experience that then also going through that, that kind of gave you the bug to go start something of your own? Yeah. I mean, I think in the software side, for sure, I think, you know, the, at some point you, you just, you sort of have this, you know, how can I have more impact? Right. And like when you're, you know, as an individual contributor, you're like, how can I help my team? And then as you're a manager, it's like, how can I help my division? And then as you're running a division, how can I help my company? And then it's like, well, the next stage is sort of to run the company. And that I built enough relationships at that point and, and you know, friends to go launch the company with that. That's when we sort of what I would call, you know, founded my first venture backed startup. But I think prior to that, obviously had, I think three different companies that I had officially started because, um, Obviously, it started some sole proprietor companies and then they were not venture backed. And so these were more like the sort of uh, one was just doing website affiliate marketing type stuff and content creation. 
The other one was the embroidery business that I talked about. And then I had worked with a friend on another project, but so it had went through the phases of like getting business, you know, licenses and filing taxes and like understanding the like economics of how to go start that and the logistics of the admin of a business. But, um, Accompli was the first venture backed business that I started, which was the one that ultimately got acquired by Microsoft uh, and became Outlook. Which is insane, by the way, to think of a, a life before that level of outlook existed and that you were the, I'll say the, the seed that, that started off that. It's absolutely awesome. Um, so walk us through, I mean, cause it was pretty quick. What, like not even two years between a company kind of being founded and going in and then being acquired by Microsoft. Right. Yeah. Like the whole thing end to end was 18 months. And so, yeah, we raised them. That's crazy. Yes. Started a debt. We had a beta of the iOS app about six to eight months in. Um, and then, yeah, like four or five months after that launched Android app. And then I think a couple months later we were acquired. And so obviously a lot of stuff happened in those months, but, um, but that was sort of the quick one. Yeah. We had two customers. It was really one entity, but, uh, it was the federal government. So the NSA and the CIA was the only customer that we had, um, from an enterprise, but the, the goal was to sell enterprise software. And then, um, like I said, when Microsoft came to license the software, um, ended up ultimately deciding to acquire the company because um, it would have been hard for a company of that scale to sort of just license it from a rather small team. It, would, it just made a lot more sense to to purchase the whole thing. You say you had one customer. Your customer was the federal government. That's a pretty damn big customer. So don't 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 let yourself sell yourself short on that one, man. That was uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was it was a seven figure deal, and uh, I mean they were actually investors, so they have a. Um, an investment arm called InQtel, which is the CIA's investment arm, and so yeah, the CIA and the NSA, w w you know, basically was was licensing our software to to do secure email um, for some of their um, employees and associates. There's a whole rabbit hole that I really want to go down. The time is not going to allow us to to figure out what it's like working with NSA and CIA, but we're gonna we'll save that for another time. Um, for sure. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Microsoft wanted to keep you around for a while because I think you, uh, you you hung out there to help kind of build out ultimately Outlook. Um, then over into Instacart, walk us through going from, again, venture back startup, rapid, like crazy fast work, get acquired, work on Microsoft. What what make you jump? What made you jump over to Instacart? Yeah, so we were working on another. Um another startup. So we had left, you know, decided to leave Instacart or to leave, leave Microsoft. And I was working on another idea with some friends and, um, yeah, got connected to, to Instacart and they were at this sort of point, they had just raised somewhere between three and $4 billion valuations. So they'd raised hundreds of millions and we're at this sort of point where the engineering team was still quite small, like in the, you know, 50 ish range. Um, and so looking to sort of expand and really just kind of grow, they, the company had been around for about eight years, um, and a lot of people, I mean, we had used them in the Bay Area at my house for for many years, but a lot of people, they weren't really as widely known as they were obviously today. And um, it, it just was a fascinating business. I'd always been, a, you know, uh, sort of enamored by the whole like Uber and, and gig worker kind of economy and how that worked. And it was just such a cool way to create jobs, but also this just incredible way to staff um, really, really large enterprises um, and so I think got, you know, literally I drove before I had the meeting with the CEO, uh, Porva and founder, I drove for Instacart as a driver for about a week, maybe a week and a half. And I had, you know, done basically a hundred batches or orders, you know, anywhere an hour or two 
per, you know, doing shopping in the store, delivering to customers and actually acting. And so when I got to meet him for the first time, I had this really fun sort of discussion where we got to talk really deeply about the app and how the economics work and the company and everything. Cause I'd essentially worked for them, you know, for already a week. And, you know, that, I think that was from what I know, the first time somebody had ever put in that many hours and then walked in for a relatively senior role um, to talk about that. So ultimately joined. Um, and then shortly thereafter, when the pandemic hit, Instacart went from a like, hey, really nice to have, saves you a bunch of time on your groceries to like, dude, I just, this is the only way to get food. You know, the world is shutting down. And, you know, we had essentially unlimited demand for about 10 weeks in the first 10 weeks that where people really weren't sure what to do. And um, so we hired about 1.5 million shoppers over those first five to seven weeks um, and really massively scaled the business. And um, it was, you know, a really fun, interesting time while the world was going through a bunch of pain. It was an interesting place to be and, and got to learn a lot of things there about like hyperscale at, you know, a place that most people have not seen that kind of scale. And, you know, the percentages of growth don't even make sense when you talk about those kind of numbers and it went from 50 engineers to over 1500 in the matter of a couple years. And uh, yeah, it was a great journey. And again, very different business in some levels where it was like, you know, Outlook and Accompli were very consumer businesses. Uh, a lot of the email stuff I'd done before were very enterprise driven, although you had consumers using it. Instacart had like this very inst in enterprise focus in the sense that you had to work with very large, slow, old grocery companies that were looking to modernize um, at the same time work with consumers that were expecting and sort of demanding it. And at some level maps to Web3 in some sense, right? You have to work with some parts of the system that are very legacy and old and then other parts that are incredibly consumer where you're out here, you know, quote unquote, talking to customers, potential customers, fans, haters, et cetera. Um, and so I think there's always something to learn there, right? And, you know, having empathy for the shoppers, I think at some level connects today with how we as a project founders have to have empathy for our holders, right? And I think there's a, a good corollary in terms of like, it is really hard to appease everyone with the way they want it. But I think creating a listening model and, and being able to sort of think through that has been one of the ways that, you know, is that what I've seen is the best way to sort of work through that, even though, you know, you're never going to always make a hundred percent of the people happy a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. I, I, I love the, the corollaries. I mean, I'm a long time corporate degenerate myself. And I think there's, you know, while web three is very new in a lot of different ways, there are some things that I think can draw back on kind of previous experience. And so I think finding those connections, I think is just a, it's an area that can hopefully provide a shortcut that some things actually have been done before and they can be done well and we don't need to reinvent those while we go reinvent a lot of other things. So absolutely totally. love that. So so you, you you already mentioned Web3. My next uh, question was going to be, and you know, the reason why there's a lot of Utes and gods out there uh, is Dust Labs. So after hyper growth, covid instacart world what gave you the itch to say i'm just going to go jump into web3 all in yeah so i've been interested in this space for a while i mean you know early crypto stuff been super fascinated with just the tech and the idea of digital money and then with nfts you know i've, I've still got some crypto kitties in my uh in my old metamask wallet and you know so like was just again fascinated with the tech and like what can it be done for it and i think for me it always felt like tech that was sort of looking for a solution and, and wasn't what I would describe as scaled on the way that I was coming from teams at Microsoft, hundreds of engineers 
similar at, at uh, you know, at Instacart, you know, teams of hundreds of engineers working on things. And so for me, it was like, well, there was really only, was an early investor in Coinbase, right? And so like saw like, hey, well, you could build an exchange and then you also, you know, can do L1s that so you go build something like a Solana, Polygon or more of an L2. But that, those were the only two areas where I was seeing like hundreds of engineers working on something were either the blockchains themselves or the exchanges. And my background being more in the application space of like, how do you build software that's great for users that businesses can buy? Um, hadn't seen that lane yet. Um, and, and sort of talking to the team and, and sort of watching D-Gods and being there from the early mint up until we started discussing Duppies and then Utes. Um, I, again, I was more of an advisor and sort of just talking to Frank and the team on a, on a pretty regular basis, sort of discovered that, man, there's a bunch of technology that we're having to build for D-Gods and then Utes. And there's teams that are looking to leverage that. At the same time, there's investors looking to invest in the things that we're doing and sort of came up with this idea of like, well, why don't we just make that a pure like technology business that, again, initially builds for NFT projects, very focused on Web3 and communities. And now, you know, knowing that that would eventually scale into selling to brands and connecting with how they want to build communities. And then, you know, again, think of it if like if every business on Main Street or every business, you know, on Wall Street was going to use Web3 they probably would not download MetaMask or a phantom wallet. They probably would not approach um, Web3 the same way that us as degenerates or us as like early adopters are doing it. Um, and, I, you know, they're going to log in through a website the same way they use Facebook, the same way they use, you know, MailChimp or Salesforce or HubSpot. Like they're going to log into a, a SaaS web tool and operate in Web3. And so, you know, the idea for Dust Labs was like, hey, can we build those tools being able to quickly experiment with D-Gods and Utes, but more importantly, using that learning about how we've, you know, built software to scale communities and whether it's, you know, digital communities that are fully online or like having a local events and IRL type experiences, that software, I think every company product or brand would love to have a community that looks like D-Gods or Utes, right? So if they had somebody that was, again, passionate, supportive of their brand, excited to do in-person meetups, excited to drop around, and I think that is something that, you know, we feel that that's the lane for Dust Labs. And again, you know, it's still super early. So I would it be hard to say that we found like the perfect product market fit, but we definitely can see there's a lot of appetite for finding technology, technology solutions to scaling the stuff that a lot of us have figured out manually. And so I think that is the sort of like the genesis there is really just like, look, how, how do we have hundreds of engineers working on something that brings you know, crypto, Web3, blockchain, et cetera, like pick your buzzword to like the brands that today are, you know, on Main Street when you walk down the downtown of the city you live in or on Wall Street, where, you know, or these like large stock exchanges, right? And so I think as more of those folks over the next decade start to become, you know, more interested in Web3 or find components of it that make their business or their community better, um, we want to, you know, be one of the providers of software to help them do that. I absolutely love that thought. We actually had, um, I know, you know, the, the coffee with captain crew, we had a very similar conversation this morning. Um, thinking back to, you know, some of the commercials we saw last night and how, uh, how it's likely going to change over the, over the coming years of how people interact with web three. Um, so one, one last, uh, question about you. Then we got just a couple ones. We'll get you out of here on time. Just real quick for those who don't know, how'd you end up meeting Frank? 
Yeah, so um, we, we both went to UCLA, him many years after I did. And uh, when he was at UCLA, he, him and a few friends, Candy Apple, one of our designers, and a couple other folks uh, were working on a project um, doing like delivery. It was a delivery business for college students. Like the idea of like, think of it as like DoorDash, but they, this, the employees were all students. So they had student IDs that could like get right to the dorm room and they could get there on a scooter in a few minutes and literally deliver snacks and things that college students need real quickly. And so uh, it's literally a backyard barbecue at a very eager uh, Lightspeed partner here down in Los Altos Hills. And so it was like a mixer, sort of like alumni meetup of like alumni, sort of like angel investors from UCLA meeting with startups from UCLA. And it was just a summer sort of uh, portfolio thing where the, the startups that are working at the UCLA Ventures and UCLA startups come out together and, and come to Silicon Valley. And so Frank and guys that either drove up or flew up or something but there was a bunch of teams presenting and literally they just came up to me i happened to be wearing an instacart jacket and he was like oh we love instacart we're doing delivery stuff too and that was it we just started talking and then frank followed up with some emails and uh you know he would just come to find out he, he told me afterwards he's like i'd only call or email or text you when i had something really exciting to talk about right that was very captivating and then he would always end with some kind of question or, or ask for advice and that notion of like him bringing something exciting and then asking for, you know, sort of weaving in the mentoring piece at the end sort of essentially trained me to always take his calls. Right. And so I was like, yeah, every time he called, it was like a cool thing. I learned something. It was something new and exciting. And um, yeah, so the journey throughout him, you know, connecting there, applying to YC, getting that company funded. Ultimately, he left that company with Candy during the pandemic. Uh, the company still runs. It's doing great. It's called Duffel. It's down in, I think, nine campuses now um, doing delivery. A great guy named David, one of the other partners, the CEO, still runs it. And then, uh, yeah, they got into crypto and trading coins and then eventually NFTs. And, you know, again, I was following the journey the whole time. And so kind of was there, you know, before I would say those guys even stumbled into crypto at all, right, let alone NFTs. And um, just had a really strong relationship and connection. And we felt that that, um, you know, continued to just, I was learning from them and similar, they're learning from me and um, was a really symbiotic relationship. So that's awesome. Well, hey, we'll, uh, we'll get you out of here. Before we go, though, we ask all of our guests three questions here to end every interview. So wanted to uh, rapid fire them here with you now. Question number one, what would you say has been your greatest achievement? Having my daughter. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, question two, what has been your greatest lesson? Um, I think the early days of like the, when we got acquired by Yahoo and then VMware, I think both of those situations were learnings of how to like become part of a bigger corporation and, and understanding enterprises. And um, so, yeah, so I think coming into Yahoo, we felt that, Hey, we were this young buck startup and we were awesome to solve all the problems. And, we missed the point that like we were really there to assist and really build the business that they've built over the past couple decades. And so ultimately led to us essentially getting resold. It worked out in the end. And then at VMware, similarly, again, trying to find alignment and thinking about when you do join a larger organization, like what's the best way to assimilate? And I think that, you know, that turned into a positive getting into, uh, into Microsoft and seeing how the relationship there of what we did and then what, you know, ultimately today's outlook is much, much more successful than the other sort of acquisitions that I was part of previously. That's awesome, man. Uh, final question. Um, so, 
you know, I'm one of the co-founders of the Atlas Lions Club. We fancy ourselves a speakeasy. If you're pulling up next to me at the bar, what are you drinking, man? Uh, when, when, like, when it's a fancy bar and you use the word speakeasy, I'm doing like a Manhattan. Um, but I think like it was interesting. I was looking at that and I, it was funny because I was looking at some of the Lions Den stuff before. And um, for me, it was like the, this notion of a speakeasy is just kind of that old smoky sort of, you know, you knock on the door and give the code kind of thing. And, and there's a there's a bit of like nostalgic there of that. And um, yeah, having a Manhattan, I think, is, is sort of fits that just pretty classic, simple, um, but definitely timeless drink. And I think uh, thinking back to the last speakeasy that called themselves a speakeasy that I was in was in New York. And I'm not going to remember the name. Um, but it, they had the sort of like, you know, knock on the door code kind of thing. Um, obviously, it was just published on Yelp. It wasn't that hard to find. But um, but it was pretty cool. And and the experience, and I definitely ordered in Manhattan. Now, did you drink it from a glass or a shoe? Uh, dude, I don't know the difference, I'll be honest. It was like when they had that ball of, <laughs> they had the ball of ice, the clear ball of ice, and like like a tumbler glass probably. Uh, love it, love it. Hey, Kevin, I know you've got a hard stop, so I really do appreciate you hanging on here and uh, and stopping by the lines. And everyone out there, appreciate you hanging in as well. That wraps up this week's episode. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you all next week at 3 p.m. Eastern for the next episode of Lions Den. Until then, my name is Von Fronten, and it's been a pleasure being with you this week. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>